This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The show that won this year's Tony Awards for Best Musical and Best Book for a Musical was written and composed by my guest, Michael R. Jackson. One of the cast members became the first trans person to be nominated for a Tony. The show, called A Strange Loop, also won a Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Jackson started writing it when he was working as an usher at the Broadway show The Lion King. He describes his show as a musical about a young black gay musical theater writer named Usher who works as an usher at a Broadway show. In the play, Usher is writing a musical about a young black gay musical theater writer named Usher who works as an usher at a Broadway show and is writing a musical about a young black gay musical theater writer named Usher. That is one of the strange loops that the title refers to. A Strange Loop is a comedy and drama about self-loathing, feeling stuck, and wanting to change, and about Usher's church-going parents who fear his sexuality will condemn him to eternally burn in hell. Usher's inner feelings are personified by characters called his daily self-loathing, his supervisor of sexual ambivalence, his inner white girl, and others. Jackson says the show isn't autobiographical, but there are definitely parallels to his own life. Let's start with the opening song called Intermission Song. Usher is played by Jaquel Spivey, who was also nominated for a Tony. Till the end of intermission Is that how the show should open? Should there even be a show? No, it should start with what he's thinking Which is just a cursor blinking Cause of all of the directions That the narrative could go To show what it's like To live up here And travel the world In a fat black queer body How many minutes Till the end of intermission No one cares about a writer Who is struggling to write Just saying it's way too repetitious And so overly ambitious Which of course makes them suspicious That, that you think you're This is why he has to fight for his right To live in a world That chills up and spits out Black queers on the daily Blackness, queerness Fighting back to fill this is at all white space With a portrait of a portrait of a Michael R. Jackson, welcome to Fresh Air. Congratulations on the Tonys and the Pulitzer. Um, As I mentioned in the introduction, there are performers who personify Usher's inner voices, his daily self-loathing, the supervisor of his sexual ambivalence, his financial advisor, and his inner white girl. So most of us are familiar with that inner voice of daily self-loathing, although it comes in different flavors. What was your flavor? My flavor was always thinking that I wasn't attractive enough, that I, you know, was awkward, that I didn't fit in to certain groups of people. 
you know, at different periods of my life, I think I was concerned about whether I was quote unquote black enough. So it, it sort of manifested in lots of different ways. Well, in terms of questioning whether people perceived you as being black enough, one of Usher's inner voices is his inner white girl. Who is she? The inner white girl is a kind of abstract concept that mostly refers to the singer-songwriter women that Usher really admires artistically, whose work really lives in a really free space where they get to express themselves in a full emotional continuum and in a way that he feels that he cannot express himself uh, in his work, but also in life. I think part of what Usher admires about them is their ability to express vulnerability, which he feels that he can't in his art or in his life. And I'm wondering if you felt that way too. Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, growing up, there was a lot of music that was being played that did not match my inner life. And I didn't even really realize at that point until it was put in front of me that there were any songwriters who who did sort of sing about their inner lives from a very vulnerable place or from a place of candor or anything like everything like I just thought all music was just kind of um straightforward pop music and I didn't know about singer-songwriters until a certain point and once I encountered started encountering them and in particular Tori Amos who is like sort of this one of the most important influences on me as an artist I suddenly realized oh you can actually talk about gnarly feelings in a song. I want to ask you about another one of Usher's inner voices. And this is the inner voice that's checking in to see if he's found his unapologetic blackness yet because his numbers are Mm -hmm. in the toilet with the black excellence crowd and he's close to cancellation. What's that about? Um, That's, you know, this, this sort of story that has to do with Usher not feeling like he is in the in-group of blackness and, and that he's not sort of hitting his marks as a respectable black person who fits in socially and who says all the right things and wears the right clothes and has the right opinions and so on and so forth. Well, advice Usher is given includes, you need to make your show about police violence, slavery, and intersectionality, because that, that could be really lucrative. Did you feel that way yourself? Um, I mean, all you, I, what I'll say to that, I'm always a little coy about this, is like, just look around. Like, what, what stories do you see often getting produced? They are those stories, and like the, and the language, and the, and the sort of the rhetoric around what representation is or should be often ends up boiling down to, you know, a binary of trauma versus joy. That's that's an interesting perception. And where do you think you fit in on that scale, if at all? I don't fit on that scale. You just reject that scale. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm trying to like, I, the God I worship is nuance and complexity and boundary pushing and, and risk taking 
and truthfulness. Like, I really am interested in, like, is it real? Do, like, what are the things that people feel but don't say? What, like, what new ground can be covered? Particularly in, you know, Black storytelling, because so much respectability is about don't say this in front of white people. And I'm just, like, not interested in, in that. I'm interested in saying what's on my mind. Or testing out ideas, like getting characters to argue about something. What are the questions that we're not asking? What are the complications that we're not facing? What's the truth? Is there like anything specific you can point to for people who haven't seen the show in a strange loop that you think people think but are unwilling to say? You know, I think the, for example the sort of argument that is posed about what Black artistic work should be and using Tyler Perry's work as a sort of comparison is one thing. Like, in this, there's a song on the show called Tyler Perry Writes for Life, wherein Usher is asked by his agent to ghostwrite a Tyler Perry-style gospel play. And he says no for a bunch of reasons that have to do with him thinking not highly of Tyler's work. And then he's confronted by the quote-unquote ancestors who admonish him for not sort of seeing the, the financial possibilities of taking on such a project. And, but then he sort of counters to them that you know, he thinks that his plays are not good for black people, but then they counter back that it doesn't matter because the money is too good. And I just think that that's like a, an argument that you hear all the time that I wanted to dig a little deeper into. Well, let's hear the song that you just referred to, which is called Tyler Perry Writes Real Life. So um, it starts with the voice of Usher's agent. I know it's been months since we last spoke, and I have no idea if this is of any interest to you or if you have any materials to send. But we just got a call for submissions for something very exciting, especially for you. Oh, yeah? What is it? Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry. Oh, no. Tyler He's gotten so busy with film and TV that his team is looking to farm out the gospel plays to a ghost writer. It'll be a scream. And didn't you once tell me that your mother would love nothing more than for you to write one? So how about it, Ush? Just write a sassy matriarch, a lonely spinster who loves God. Throw in a few color purple quotes. What do you say? opportunity of course, of course. Tyler would be none too fond of me now don't sell yourself short the crap he puts on stage film and tv makes my bio wanna rise i know you're Nothing that he writes seems real to <laughs> yeah, me yeah you think he's that just simple mighty <laughs> hack buffoonery but no white theaters will let you and if i tried to match his coonery bt3 my disguise just think about it it's true 
I'm still emerging, looking to make my start, but not so hungry that I'd ride the chitlin circuit. I'm into entertainment that's undercover art. My mission is to figure out just how to work it today. So that was the song Tyler Perry Writes Real Life from the Broadway cast recording of A Strange Loop, which was written by my guest, Michael R. Jackson, who also wrote the music and lyrics for the show. Um, So that song is very, you know, humorously critical of Tyler Perry's work with a formula of a sassy matriarch, a lonely spinster who loves God, and a few quotes from The Color Purple. Um, Did you grow up with his work? Did your parents love his work? Like, what's your connection? What's your personal connection to Tyler Perry movies and or shows? I did not grow up with his work. I wasn't I wasn't made aware of them until I got to college. And a, my best friend, Kisha, sort of was like, have you heard about this guy? And as a sort of gag gift for her birthday that year, I bought me and her tickets to see his play, Why Did I Get Married? That was playing in New York City at the Beacon Theater. And we went to it, and we both were just like really struck by the fact that it was like a packed house. It was like a pretty much an all-black audience, which I don't think either of us had really seen before. And it was funny because like we were like playwriting students at NYU at this time, and obviously like you know minority students in a predominantly white institution. And so, but both of us from black cities, so we it wasn't like it was foreign to us of being in black spaces, but seeing this particular kind of work, which in a lot of ways reminded us of back home of watching like, you know, black history programs that we would do at church or Christmas programs or Easter programs. It like it had that feeling. And so I became that sort of began my curiosity about his work, especially as it then began to blow up into T V and film. And so I would watch the movies and I would see some of the TV shows and I would also continue to watch some of the stage plays that would be recorded for DVD. And I then would like find out that like my mother was like a huge fan of his work and I and other people, you know, around me were as well. And something that they would sometimes say was that they liked his work because it was like real life. And I just found that to be a really baffling assessment of what I was seeing because I was like, I know what it reminds me of back home, but real life is not what I thought of it. And the more I sort of sat with that idea, the more that Tyler sort of became my white whale (laughs) that I was chasing. (laughs) And and then especially when I saw, and this is well into me working on drafts of A Strange Loop, when I saw the 2013 film uh, Temptation Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, wherein two women are stricken with HIV AIDS sort of as punishment for their having sex with this bad man who was like a devil man. And I just was so blown away by that and how like there's all this like this weird religious moralism in, in his work and in the theater where I watched Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, this woman, once one of the characters is is announced to have gotten HIV from another character, she goes, that's what she gets. And that reminded me of back home. That like that was that was my real life of like people sort of saying 
you know, really negative things about sexuality. And it wasn't in, in a gay context, but it all felt of one piece to me. And so I, I sort of began really in earnest dealing with the satire of what Tyler's work represents and what it can lead to. So deeper into that song, in a part that we didn't hear, several characters come out identifying themselves as Harriet Tubman, Jimmy Baldwin, Whitney, Marcus Garvey, Zora Neale Hurston, and 12 Years a Slave. And they all accuse Usher of being a race traitor or something worse. Can you talk about coming up with that idea? Yeah, I just think I wanted to do something that was like a hoot. And the idea that the ancestors would come out of their grave to defend (laughs) Tyler Perry felt like (laughs) just like a way of actually having an argument that wasn't one dimensional about what Usher's issues with Tyler Perry's work was. I wanted them to defend Tyler Perry's work vigorously and to stand up for the voices of people who really love his work. Because I think it's very easy, and Tyler has had this criticism almost his entire career, particularly once he started to become more successful and and well-known and kind of a household name, is I just didn't want it to be as simple as his work is not respectable enough, because that's not really what Usher or my critique is. Um, I wanted it to be about evaluating the idea that his work is representing Black life in a realistic way. You know, and I just felt like getting the ancestors out there to kind of send that idea up on fire was a really fun but also um, rigorous way of of having that conversation. I was kind of pleased to read, though, that he got in touch with you and... um you know, kind of congratulated you on the play and that you're on decent terms. Like, it's it's nice to know you can yeah. be really critical of somebody else's work and still appreciate each other on some level. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't totally know how to characterize what our relationship is at this point. We have not actually met. Mm. But we've had a couple of conversations, once on the phone and then we text each other every once in a while. And he he's always very congratulatory if something happens with the show. So when I won the Tony, he texted me to congratulate me. And we and then we ended up talking about the show because he still hasn't seen it. And by this point, people who know him and are friends with him have seen it, some of whom had told him that he must see it, and some of whom have seen it and told him that he must not see it. <laughs> and so I think he's sort of on the fence about whether like whether he can handle it or not or whether it would be a good idea and i told him that i think it's uh, totally up to him and that he does not need to see the show if he feels like it's gonna piss him off um and i and i get it you know but at the same time he is he has been very nice to me all things considered and i appreciate that he doesn't have to do that and and I told him that, you know, I think that he and I should break bread at some point. Let's talk about church in your life, because church, church plays a significant role in A Strange Loop. In A Strange Loop, Usher's parents are 
church-going people, and they really think that his sexuality is going to condemn him to hell. And they, they think as an act of love, they should prevent him from being homosexual to save him. And of, co- of course, that's, that's help he, he, he rejects. Um, so let's talk about church in your life. I know your mother was the recording secretary. She was the church secretary. The church secretary. And your father was a trustee. And you were in the choir, and I think you played piano at the church, too? I sang in, like, the, the children's choir as a little, little kid, but mm-hmm. I primarily played for the children's choir as I got older, and I also played for the older ladies' choir for a period of time. Is there, like, a, a especially favorite or meaningful hymn or gospel song that you used to do in church? Um... It wasn't a song that I played, but it was a song that was sung at church that I really loved called Till I Can Journey On, I think is what's the name of it. And I always loved hearing it sung. So I know you have a good voice because I've heard you sing on the internet. And um, I'm wondering if you could sing a few bars for us, with, if you're comfortable. Sure. It went... Um, You gave me the strength to make it through another day. All the strength I had from yesterday was all gone. All the pressures from yesterday took all of my strength away. You renewed my strength. And now I can journey on. Oh, thank you for singing that. I could see why it was meaningful to you. Um, so you were in this position at church where, you know, you had a prominent position, you know, playing for the choirs, singing in the choir as a child, but also having to hide your sexuality because that would have been very disapproved of in church. Did the preacher preach about the dangers of homosexuality? Did you have to sit through sermons like that? There was frequently what would happen is the sermon could be about like anything. It would start in like one scripture, there would be a topic, and somehow it would like meander around to condemning homosexuality or other kind of sins of the flesh. That that happened, I wouldn't say that happened every Sunday, but it happened enough that especially at the point when I realized that I was gay, that it became very bothersome to me. I want to play another song from A Strange Loop, and this is called Periodically. And it's a voicemail that Usher's mother leaves to wish him a happy birthday because it's his 26th birthday, which is falling on the 26th day of the month, which makes it seem extra special. But the song turns into a reminder after you know, the mother talking about how much she loves Usher. She kind of segues into talking about how homosexuality isn't right with God or with hell and that hell is real. So let's hear an excerpt of periodically and periodically refers to that periodically the mother likes to remind him that hell is real and homosexuality is like a filthy, unholy desire. You were born at 8.31 this morning, my love. Mom loves you. You turned 26 on the 26th. I hope I'm the first one to call you. But even if I'm not, with the exception of our dear Heavenly Father, I am the one that loves you the most. 
like to remind you periodically read your Bible, son. Don't put Jesus behind you periodically read your Bible, son. One, honor thy father and thy mother that thy days on the earth will be long. Ye may feel helpless, but Jesus is strong. And three, and most importantly, most importantly, it's the reason I'm singing this song. Listen at me now. Man is for woman, and woman for man. The rest is confusion. And not in God's plan All of these Hollywood homosexuals Waving gay flags all their night Sticking their fangs up each other's buttholes I'm telling you, son, that it just ain't right It ain't right, it ain't right, it ain't right with God It ain't right, it ain't right, it ain't right And I just like to call up my baby boy and remind him of that periodically. Cause I love you and I don't want your soul to be wasted. It hurts me so bad sometimes I can't taste it. Sinners burning, sinners churning in rivers of fire. So that was a song periodically from the Broadway cast recording of A Strange Loop, which was written by my guest Michael R. Jackson. Both the book and the songs were written by him. How were you introduced to Broadway shows? You grew up in Detroit, far away from Broadway. I don't know how many shows you got to see when you were coming of age. I was introduced to Broadway probably really when I came to college at NYU, but I was aware of a lot of Broadway shows before that. Um, but I didn't grow up watching the Tonys or anything like that. Um, but I did grow up like, like uh, I, I saw West Side Story, the movie at an early age, and I saw like Little Shop of Horrors, like the movie. I think that was my main way of absorbing Broadway was the movie versions. Although... Sometimes tours would come through Detroit and my mother would take me to see them. And that was like our little thing that we did together. So I remember we went to Toronto when I was 12 or 13 and we saw the 94 revival of Showboat. Oh, and that was great. I was blown away by it. Yeah. Like it. To this day, it is like one of my favorite scores. And I just thought it was like a devastatingly beautiful show. And I loved the songs and... And I think it planted a seed in me, even though I wasn't thinking about being a musical theater writer at that time, that musicals could be complex and epic and and could really sort of do a lot, that they weren't just like, you know, jazz hands. Yeah, right. So I know that you've often felt like you were standing outside of what was happening as, well, Usher feels that way anyways. <laughs> as like an outsider in in any circle. When you started 
going to theater school at NYU Tisch School of the Arts. I mean, theater schools are filled with gay people. Um, did you feel like you'd found a home in that respect, both artistically and personally? Yes and no. Because remember, I started undergrad in 1999. And so while, yes, there was, you know, gay representation and that sort of thing, A, that gay representation was predominantly white. And B, it was still a a weird sort of time in terms of gay acceptance. And I remember, like, in my freshman year, like, I was trying to, like, walk this line of, like, people knowing I was gay but not knowing it and not not knowing how open I could really be about it Mm -hmm. because I had come out of a situation in Detroit where, like, I really had to be secret about it. So I was out, certainly, when I was, you know, in college, but what that meant was, like, a very... I was, like, very conservative about it because I just didn't know how how to rock it. And just the world was in a different place at that time. Did you have to be secret about it in Detroit because your parents were church people, or were there other reasons, too? Yeah, I mean, it was that, just the whole, like community. I mean, my parents knew I was gay by the time I got to college because I had sort of come out to them. But, like, it wasn't something that I was, like, out... I wasn't, like, out at church. And I wasn't really out at school except amongst, like, a a sort of secret society of other black gay boys, for the most part. And other, you know, queer kids who were around us. Um, So it it was, like, a strange sort of insider outsider thing where like a bunch of us knew that the others were gay but we also all were hiding it from like our our community you came out to your parents when you were 17 about what year was that uh that was 1998 what was their first reaction uh they were not happy (laughs) they were shocked they were scared they were upset um they had like a, a really big reaction how upsetting was that for you? It was it was very upsetting ultimately, but in the moment I was so consumed by all of their emotions that I I couldn't even focus on what I felt or thought. And so I just sort of was sitting inside of this sort of feeling of like, oh my god, what have I what have I done to like disrupt the family? In the show, Usher's father asks Usher after the father finds out that Usher is gay, he says, son, are you attracted to me? And, and Usher says in response, I'm too black, fat, ugly, and effeminate to be the kind of man you'd be attracted to if you were attracted to men. Did your father actually ask you that? And if so, what did you say in response? So my father did ask me if I was attracted to him. But he meant that in a kind of rhetorical, that was like a rhetorical move because his understanding of like homosexuality was just that, I think, this is, this is me sort of analyzing what that moment was, was that it doesn't make sense. Like being attracted to men, like when you say you're attracted to men, well, I'm a man. Do you know, like it was just a rhetorical move in order to double down on the idea that being gay was not a good idea. 
Mm-hmm. The other stuff that's in the the show that Usher says in response are like the things that I maybe wish that I could have said mm-hmm. or that I, th- I mean, that's like the, the thing that gets hard about the show. And that's another reason why, like, I never want to describe it as autobiographical because it's like, I wanted to experiment with the idea of like, well, what if, like, what, what, what are the things that Usher would feel that he wishes that he could say that would have some impact on the character of the father that would be provocative, that would be, you know, sort of piercing the veil of respectability that he sort of lives inside of. What did you say? What? How did you react? I reacted with um, very little. Like, there was, there was, like, that moment in my life, there was so little I could say. No one really was listening to me. And so I was grappling to find the words to try to just get through the moments because I was so worried about what was going to happen to me. Like, I like I was like, am I going to get thrown out of the house? Like, I didn't know what was going to happen because all I understood at that moment was that being gay was so bad and that parents really didn't want their kids to be gay. And, like, it just was a confusing time. And so I was just sort of grasping at whatever straw I could grasp at. So I didn't say very much other than, no, I'm not attracted to you. Were there consequences in your family f- after you came out? W- did you get thrown out of the house? Was no. it difficult to communicate um, after that? I mean, it was difficult to communicate, but the thing that was also true in the midst of all of that was that my parents loved me. They weren't necessarily expressing it in the most positive manner that they could have expressed it in. But I never really felt like... I don't think I ever really thought I was going to get thrown out of the house or anything like that. Because I had seen that happen with other gay kids around me. And that wasn't really the profile of my family. It just was a complicated, emotional family dynamic. And one that it was going to take us like a long time to sort of work through. Have your parents changed their mind about you being gay and about homosexuality in general? So I don't, I could not tell you what my parents think about homosexuality. Like, I don't think that they have like one continuum of thought about that. But what I can tell you is that they are very proud of me and that they love me and that they root for me, you know, louder than anybody else. I can also tell you that some of the actions that they've taken over the years signal to me that they are not supportive of quite a a lot of anti-gay ideas Mm. and that they have evolved in some way, even if it's a small way for them, and that we, you know, we are very close. What's your parents' reactions to the show and to how Usher's parents are portrayed? They really love the show and they're very impressed by it. Um, They've seen it three times. My mom bought the libretto and she's read it three times and she'll read it and then she'll listen to the cast album. (laughs) Um, And I think that their reactions to the characters of the parents are that there are some things like superficial elements of the of the parents that they recognize in themselves. But other than that, 
they see the show as a as a fiction. So I want to get to another theme in A Strange Loop, which is that the main character, Usher, uh, thinks of himself as fat and therefore unlovable and unable to have, you know, a, a loving relationship or, you know, even any kind of sexual relationship. And I'm, I'm wondering if that, those feelings come from your life at all. Um, so I definitely came of age, I came out, into what I always call the black gay teenage storyline of my life. There were lots of black gay teenage boys around me. They were sexually active. They were in relationship with each other. It was high drama. It was like all of that. And I was somewhat on the outside of that, uh, even then among like my peer group. And so then when I came to New York, where I had been told that I was going to have like the time of my life as a gay man and that I was going to have all this sex and that um, it was going to be just like a grand old party. I, what I learned is that I was at the bottom of the food chain <laughs> as far <laughs> as, as that goes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also it was a very white run kind of social scene as much as I knew at that time. This is like we're talking the late 90s early 2000s and I had to really orient myself to what it meant to be a gay man in New York City at that time as somebody who was short and fat and um, did not have any of the the sort of physical attributes that would make one sort of uh, popular in you know gay male sexual scene as I understood it, or as I knew how to be. Something that I've been thinking about recently is that I did not have any gay elders. And so there was no one to tell me what to do or where to go or how to do anything. And so every sort of experience that I had as a gay man in New York was by me making mistake after mistake after mistake, or like, or just fumbling around kind of in the dark trying to figure out how to be, how to fit in. And that, you know, was very hard for me. And it did lead to quite a lot of negative self-talk because the the messages that I was sort of getting from without was that I was not attractive enough, that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't, you know, hot enough, that I wasn't all of that. Like, it was just, it was all kind of um, just a, an exile in Gayville, which is how that song in a strange loop came to be how does it feel now to be in demand um it feels busy <laughs> <laughs> it feels like i'm never home like ever well i, I hope it's a good feeling whatever being bu- busy yeah no it's 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 good it's you know i spent so many years like working terrible day jobs and like wanting to like jump out of the window (laughs) because I hated whatever I was doing at the moment that certainly I, I am enjoying, you know, being able to share my work with the world and getting people to listen to me and, and also getting to, you know, try to be as clear about my ideas as possible. You know, one reason why I even started working on the show was that I felt unseen, unheard, and misunderstood. And as somebody whose, who's, you know, trade is literally in language, I'm always 
interested in trying to make sure that I say what I mean and that I mean what I say. Since you worked as an usher at The Lion King, when you started the process of writing A Strange Loop, and the main character in A Strange Loop is an usher at The Lion King, now that you have a hit show, do you talk to the ushers and do you try to hire ushers for whom this will be a good theater experience, a good opportunity for them to kind of almost be an apprentice? Well, I don't have anything to do with hiring the ushers. They're, they belong to a union, um, Local 306. Mm-hmm. They, they place them in, the, in the, the theaters they work at. But I do, when I go to the show, I do often talk to them. They're very nice people. Um, but they also have a, a different situation than I had an usher, because when you're a Disney usher, you have a, this long employee handbook, and you're considered a cast member. And you're and and the the people who come to see the shows are guests, and they are, and it's almost like you're working at a theme park. Like they want to create a like an experience for the people coming to see the shows, and so they're just very strict about everything from grooming to to how you can gesture to the restroom and all that sort of stuff. It's like it's pretty intense. God, how are you supposed to gesture to the restroom? What's the protocol? Um, open-handed. You're never supposed to point. Because? Because I guess pointing is seen as rude. I don't. I, I don't know the reasoning behind it, but like they, they have a lot of rules that are about decorum and and making sure that you know the guests feel as like welcome as possible. And I guess they've identified certain things that make people feel more or less welcome. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I, I don't have like a deep intel onto, on, into it other than that, that they're very strict about it. Michael R. Jackson, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. And again, congratulations on the Tonys and the Pulitzer and the success that A Strange Loop is having. Thank you. Michael R. Jackson wrote the book and the songs for the Broadway musical A Strange Loop. You can hear the music from the show on the new cast recording. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, our guest will be Bisha K. Ali, head writer of the Disney Plus series Ms. Marvel, the first show or movie in the Marvel Universe to star a Muslim hero. Its heroine, Kamala Khan, battles bad guys, sure, but she's also just trying to figure out how to be a teen living with her immigrant parents in Jersey City. Ali was born in England to Pakistani parents. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering today from Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Henri Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. 